Hello and welcome to episode 26 of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I'm Christine Van Gein, the CCF's litigation director. And I'm Joanna Barron, executive director of the CCF. In today's episode, we'll give you an update on a couple of cases that we've been working on. I'll walk you through the latest news on the federal government's online harms legislation and some rumors that we've heard about it. And we'll share our bad legal takes of the week where we take a lighthearted look at some legal opinions that didn't quite land. But first, I'm going to tell you about the hottest debate in Canadian constitutional law right now. Sounds like an oxymoron almost. Mm. So as you know, Saskatchewan's gender pronouns policy is back in the headlines again because Canada has no more pressing problems, apparently. I'm talking, of course, about the policy that says parents must consent before teachers start calling kids by different names or pronouns unless the kid is 16 or older. And this policy arose because of fears that some teachers were allowing or perhaps even encouraging kids to change their genders without parents knowing and parents want to be involved in these big decisions. And polls suggest, you know, most people agree with that with the notable exception of Alberta law professors. We're not going to talk about the merits or demerits of that policy. Enough has been said about that, but we do need to talk about this case again because what's happening with Section 33 is a really big deal. So Section 33 of the Charter is, of course, the notwithstanding clause, which Saskatchewan's legislature opted to use to shield this law from being struck down after a court suggested last fall that the policy might violate charter rights. The question at this stage of the litigation is whether the invocation of the clause by the legislature ended the conversation or whether the judge could keep hearing the case and then make an unenforceable declaration about whether or not rights had been violated. Now, the notwithstanding clause says that Parliament or provincial legislature can declare that an act or a provision thereof shall operate notwithstanding a provision in Section 2 or Section 7 to 15 of the Charter. It also says that a declaration shall cease to have effect at most five years after it comes into force. And there's no serious dispute that this means that a legislature can use the clause to shield laws from being invalidated by courts. But what we don't know about Section 33 is whether judges need to put their pens down as soon as it's been invoked by a legislature or whether judges can still go ahead with hearing the charter challenges and issue the aforementioned declarations. This question came up in the Hat case, which is the challenge to Bill 21, the Quebec law that bans religious symbols like hijabs and yarmulkes on public sector workers. And... In that case, the judge declined to issue a declaration in part because he thought it would be, quote, doing indirectly what he couldn't do directly. Now, in this Saskatchewan pronouns case, Justice McGaw of the Saskatchewan Court of King's Bench last week suggested that he's open to issuing a declaration. And the Saskatchewan government obviously opposed this. They put forward a case called Horner, where the judge had said that Section 33 insulates legislation from charter attack and judicial scrutiny, and that if it's invoked, the claim would be foreclosed and beyond judicial review. But Justice McGaw said that this was obiter dicta, so you know, a comment just made in passing. And so it was not binding law, and he could decide differently. Now, because there's no binding case law, Justice McGaw went back to first principles, which means focusing on the text. And there are textual arguments on both sides of this debate. So on one side of the debate, you have 
uh, McGill, Dean, Robert Lecky, Eric Mendelson, and Gregoire Weber, who say, yes, courts can issue declarations based on the text of Section 33. On the other side are Maxime Saint-Hilaire, Xavier Menard, and Jeff Sigalette, who are of the view that no courts need to butt out after Section 33 is invoked. One of the reasons Lecky and Mendelssohn give that we must read the text of Section 33.2 as not ousting the judiciary is based on the context provided by Section 33.3, which is part of which which is the part that limits the declarations to five years, and that's the maximum time between elections. They say this is a clear signal that voters are supposed to have a say in whether legislators who invoke the clause were justified in doing so, and it therefore follows that judicial review which can help voters decide whether a law is consistent with sections 2 or 7 to 15 supports that democratic process. It supports their 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 role in um, determining the limits of the Constitution. So in other words, in the, on that view, a declaration would serve not only as a sort of moral victory for those who believe their rights were violated by the law, but it can be held up in the next election to say, see, a judge said my rights are violated by this law and you're all bad people if you reelect these legislators who passed this and then invoked Section 33. And Justice McGaugh likes this argument. He adds to this that the text of Section 33 doesn't include any words that in his view could remove the jurisdiction of the court. And if the intent was to remove that jurisdiction, it would need to be done with really clear words. McGaugh rejected the arguments made from people on the other side who say no, the invocation of Section 33 ends the matter and the judges need to bow out after that. This includes, as I mentioned, Jeff Sigalette, who explains in a very interesting paper that there are at least two ways of reading the clause. One is that it operates notwithstanding the fact that rights are being violated. In other words, Section 33 is meant to allow for an override of rights. And the second is that the clause ensures that laws operate notwithstanding judicial review in which case it's a clause that allows legislators not to override rights, but to help construct the limits on those rights alongside the courts, which are constructing them all the time. And this latter view, which, which is called the constructive view, seems to have found strong support in the Toronto City versus Ontario case, where the Supreme Court of Canada upheld Doug Ford's cuts to the size of city council during the middle of an election. In that case, Chief Justice Wagner and Justice Brown for the majority reasoned that, quote, the notwithstanding clause allows the legislature to give, give effect to its understanding of what the Constitution requires. In other words, it's not about violating rights, but about pushing back against courts when the, uh, when, when the legislature or parliament thinks that the courts are wrong about what the limits are on those rights. And if you think the purpose of Section 33 is not to override rights, but to allow legislators to help construct rights or delineate where the limits are, then in Jeff's view, it makes more sense to read Section 33.2 as preventing judges from engaging in judicial review at all. In other words, no declarations. So Jeff makes a few arguments here. I won't get into most of them, but one of the interesting ones is a textual argument related to the subjunctive mood of Section 33.2, which uh, he believes has to be read in a way that doesn't suspend charter rights but prohibits substantive judicial review. Briefly, he says, Section 33.2 says the Act, quote, shall have such operation as it would have but for the provision of this charter, 
which means they operate but for any inconsistency with sections 2 or 7 to 15. And his view is this subjunctive mood implies a counterfactual world where the charter poses no threat to the law, which means courts must treat these laws as though sections 2 and 7 to 15 don't exist, and therefore they must immediately put down their pens after 33 is invoked. So Christine and Joanna, judging by our voluminous WhatsApp chat about these issues <laughs> over the past week, I think it's safe to say that none of the three of us is extremely confident at this point about who's right in this debate. So you might want to sidestep making uh, extensive comments on it at this point. But do you do you have anything you're willing to share, like any thoughts on this? Maybe, Joanna, you want to give us your thoughts first? Yeah. So look, I, I think that you've broken down the textual arguments. I think both sides can make strong claims in terms of the text of Section 33. And so for me, then it turns to a sort of normative or even instrumental um, argument, or at least I want to look at the consequences flowing from both. So on the side of, of Team Sigalette, um, and I guess Xavier Foucault-Menel, um, I can see that the concern is basically that if Section 33 allows legislatures to put in their view of what the contours of rights are, that there is a rule of law benefit to not having different actors in the state sort of giving competing interpretations of that right. Ha so, But having said that, as soon as I bring that up, I'm like, yeah, but the notwithstanding clause doesn't really seem like that type of vehicle. It seems like a vehicle that is very much, you know, it's renewable after five years. It's not meant to be a permanent uh, cemented state statement on the context of rights. Um, for me, it's a very functional stopgap measure. And then I look at the consequences that flow from the Leckie camp and just Full disclosure, I was a research assistant for Robert Leckie. Um, to me, he's just one of the most, whatever you think about his politics, uh, although he doesn't seem very uh, politically outspoken these days, like he is somebody that like in another, in a previous life, he was for sure just like a pure Roman jurist. Um, I think he's a brilliant um, constitutional jurist. But anyways, that aside, um, he makes the point that it's a good thing that to have on the record um, judicial declarations of invalidity, particularly in the context of something like the notwithstanding clause, which needs to be um, renewed. And it allows for this sort of interpretive clarity rather than uh, shunting the whole matter into what he calls in an op-ed uh, with Gregoire Weber, which maybe we'll link. Um, he calls it a constitutional black hole. Um, so I see benefits for the rule of law and consistency, um, as well as, to be honest, political accountability, because one of the defenses, and I am, by the way, somebody who is, of course, in favor of invoking the notwithstanding clause. I don't think it puts us into a sort of tyranny, as people like Leonid Sirota and Andrew Coyne would say. Um, but for me, that it, it actually strengthens, and I think, Josh, you made this point, it strengthens um, the justifiability and the um, and and the use of the notwithstanding clause to point out that you know this is not any sort of permanent final word on rights. Um, it doesn't silence other actors in the system. Um, so, anyways, those are my sort of provisional thoughts. Um, but it is a very interesting debate. Although sometimes I do feel like we're dancing on the head of a needle. Christine, what do you think? So, I think what a lot of people misunderstand about the Saskatchewan case is that, you know, the, the background of the case is about 
pronouns in school. And the the issue people understand from the background of the Saskatchewan case is about this policy that requires teachers to get parental consent of a child under whatever the age was, I think 16, wants to change their names or pronouns. And that's sort of the uh, the current political culture war flashpoint that uh, the case background is all about. But at this stage in the litigation, that issue is not what is being debated. And I think that when there's a lot of reporting about the case, yes, those are the underlying facts, but that is not what the issue is anymore at all. Like now the issue is the scope of the courts to issue declaratory um, statements about um, rights in light of Section 33 being invoked. And I think that that is, I mean, that's what the case is about now. And I don't know that the media is treating it like that is what is at issue. And it's a really, really complex issue. So I understand it's a lot easier maybe to talk about the culture war issues, but this case has moved way beyond that. And I actually think it would be helpful maybe if, uh, if we wrote something about, you know, what the Saskatchewan pronoun case is really about, because at this stage, it's it's really about something completely different. Um, I don't have a I have not, you know, put a flag in the ground on on where I come down on this debate. I've I've read the papers that are cited in the judgment. I I've, I'd read them previously. I'm re well, one of them I hadn't because it's it's in a forthcoming journal, but I'm I, the ones I haven't read. I have now read the ones I had previously read. I've reread, but I still don't uh, have a solid position on where I come down on this. But I do think it's an important issue and it's important that the media get right what the case is actually dealing with now. But let's move on to my news headline now, which I'm sure our listeners will be thrilled to hear is also extremely legally (laughs) complex, but I will, uh, I'll talk about it in a way that I think, um, sort of cuts through that. So we're finalizing materials in a new case. In fact, I'm going to be finalizing them as soon as we're done recording this podcast. And the case is about what some people have called a federal plastics ban, but really it's about the scope of the federal criminal law power and this really nasty habit that the current Trudeau federal government has of intruding into the province's jurisdiction by improperly torquing their constitutional powers so that they can just implement their own preferred policies. And this plastics ban case is just the latest example in a long list of cases where they've done this, whether it's, you know, um, the greenhouse gas emission pricing case, whether it's the Impact Assessment Act case, um, there's a, a number of cases that where where the government, the federal government does this. The, the recent decision that we talked about last week about child and indig- indigenous uh, family services. So let's talk about the background of the case. It begins in 2021, where the federal cabinet issued an order that placed, quote, plastic manufactured items on the list of toxic substances under the Inve- en- Environmental Protection Act. So after this order that said plastic items are now toxic, a blue group of industry companies uh, applied, a plastic industry companies applied to the federal court for a judicial review of that order. And it was a, a consortium of plastic companies. They they called themselves the Responsible Plastics Use Coalition. And they argued that the 
order calling plastic items toxic, um, which some people have said amounts to this plastics ban, they said that that order was unreasonable and unconstitutional. And in November of 2023, so this past November, the federal court actually sided with the plastics company companies and they struck down the order. They said that you know, this term plastic manufactured items is just too broad a category to include in the list of toxic substances. Um, and there's no way to establish that all plastic items are harmful. They also held at federal court that the order extended beyond the federal government's ability to regulate the environment through the criminal law power, which is how they were purporting to do this. Uh, so as a result, the order was quashed. Uh, the government has now announced their intention to appeal the decision, and we are applying to intervene. If granted leave, we would be arguing about the relevance of federalism's underlying purposes in the context of applying the criminal law power to modern environmental laws, as well as uh, the jurisdictional risks associated with validating criminal laws without due regard to the criminal law purpose and constraint. And this notion of the scope of the federal criminal law power is a contentious issue with a lot of legal ambiguity. And that ambiguity sort of sort of started about 25 years ago in a, you know, one of the one of the early cases about the the criminal law ability to regulate the environment. It was a case called uh, the Crown and Hydro-Quebec. And ever since that case, there has been a sort of back and forth on the scope of that power. And this plastics case presents an opportunity to clarify some of that ambiguity. In particular, one of the issues that the courts have seemed to struggle with is the issue of harm. And there are cases with divided Supreme Court reasons uh, on the issue of defining the criminal law power. Like um, there's a case called the Assisted Human Reproduction Act reference and the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act reference that struggled with this. So in this case, the plastics case, the federal court had held that in order to satisfy the criminal law test, the substance being restricted must be actually dangerous. And in Hydro-Quebec, that case involved products that the Supreme Court said were toxic in a very real sense, like lead or mercury or asbestos, uh, things that, you know, actually are very, very toxic. So the, the federal court in this case found that plastic manufactured materials didn't meet the threshold and that the cabinet order extended beyond the guardrails that had been established in Hydro-Quebec. So under the criminal law power, parliament, you know, the Trudeau government, they can't just assume control over an activity that isn't itself harmful or dangerous if only to if their only purpose is to prevent uh, the harmful or dangerous forms of that activity. N you know, not every plastic manufactured item has the potential to create harm or even the reasonable apprehension of harm. The government position in this case was, you know, we're just trust us. We're only going to restrict the use of plastics to only those that create a real risk to the environment. But this attitude of just trust us, the, the feds, the Trudeau government specifically, they've tried this before. They tried this in the Impact Assessment Act. And the but the, the court in that case, the Supreme Court rejected this, you know, just trust us. We're going to give us this wide, widely defined power and we'll use it responsibly. Don't worry. And they rejected it in that case. I think they they rejected it in this case as well. Um, 
they the court in this case said that the plastics group should not have to wait until regulations are enacted to challenge an unconstitutional order. So we at the CCF, we're seeking to intervene to support the clarification of the scope of the criminal law power to regulate the environment. We think it's very important to ensure that Parliament's use of criminal law is used within its proper constitutional limits and that the federal government doesn't overreach to intrude into provincial jurisdiction because they have certain policy preferences only to just later, you know, back end justify it, calling it criminal law. And this case is going to have a number of serious implications because there are other pieces of legislation where I think the scope of the criminal law power to regulate the environment are going to be relevant. So whatever happens in this case could impact, for example, the federal government's plan to rely on the criminal power to justify the clean energy regulations or or proposals for greenhouse gas emission regulations, a, a proposed cap that the federal government is looking at. So I think that there could be pretty wide ranging implications of this case and the scope of the criminal law power really matters here. And look, I get it. This case is, is not simple. The regulatory scheme is complicated to explain doctrines around the scope of the criminal law power to regulate the environment are so confusing that the courts themselves have struggled with them. But I think that for me, what is important about this case is that it fits into a pattern of the federal government overstepping once again into provincial jurisdiction and trying to overregulate the lives of individual Canadians. And while this case is not directly related to those municipal straw bans or municipal plastic bag bans, I think it fits into a pattern of those types of policies, which are very unpopular. I mean, at least they're unpopular with me. Uh, stop giving me those uh, stupid paper straws that dissolve in my drink. And, you know, while I don't live in Calgary, if I had pulled up to a drive through and the person working there had handed me an armful of random loose items because I'd forgotten to ask for a bag, I think I would freak out like many people in Calgary were. So I think Canadians are just really frustrated with these types of policies and with the federal government's constant meddling in their lives and in the province's business. So, Joanna, any reaction to our federal plastic ban case? Well, I, I talked about this. We talked about this when the federal court decision came out, and I think you gave a really good breakdown. I don't have a ton to add, except that I will say um, a national journalist reached out to me last week and they were trying to um, create a pattern between or draw a line between connect the dots between the Emergencies Act decision, Impact Assessment Act, and, and this federal judge decision and see a pattern of the courts sort of trying to starting to take the federal government down a notch. Um, so TBD, I mean, I think, yeah, you can draw all kinds of constellations in the sky and there are hundreds of judicial decisions reported every day. I don't know if we, if I'm ready to call this like a judicial revolt. And then we talked about this internally and Josh said, well, it's kind of similar to what the Harper government experience when it was running on its last fumes, which, you know, couldn't catch a break from the courts with Bedford and the safe injection site decision. 
Um, so maybe this is just the pattern of what happens when uh, Canadian governments start getting very long in the tooth. The I don't, I don't starts- think so. Because Ford, <laughs> Ford was smacked down by the courts for day one in Ontario. Yeah, so- Ford is in his own category. The guy is just <laughs> a genius. He just manages to be the most unprincipled. Just like he's just like you know kind of like fumbling around and seems to survive but anyway Ford Ford has a principle his principle is for the people and get it done yesterday they introduced a new act it was called literally called the get it done act yeah and Ford I I will point out he won at the Supreme Court in the Toronto City case so uh so there's that just to offer a little bit of reaction here like I think you know, Christine, your explanation of, of the law was was really good. Um, in law school, I remember being amazed to find out that uh, nobody really knows for sure what a criminal law is. At least if you look at the, if you read the judgments, you'd think that there would be some really obvious definition, but it's kind of hard to tell. And, uh, you know, everybody who's against anything thinks that um, it should be criminalized, uh, which uh, I think your bad legal take might get into later christine i'm not sure if you ended up picking that one i don't have much more to say on the plastics uh, stuff but i did want to mention that uh, it's been a busy couple of weeks because you know you've been working on this case uh, we've got some other interventions that hopefully we'll be able to announce in coming weeks and just this morning we were able to announce uh that we're helping a prince edward island municipal councillor with his legal troubles and uh, attempting to defend free speech Uh, by assisting him in his judicial review. So this is a guy who we talked about on the podcast before named John Robertson. He is a counselor in a tiny village called Murray Harbor, Prince Edward Island. And he got into trouble with his fellow counselors for writing on a sign. It's one of those signs where you change the plastic letters. He wrote truth, mass graves, hoax, reconciliation, redeem Sir John A's leg integrity. And uh, this was controversial because people accused him of residential school denialism, even though he's he's not wrong that uh, media, including publications like the New York Times, said there was a mass graves at an Indian residential school in Kamloops when that was never actually found. And what was found was more likely to be unmarked graves. But uh, anyway, this guy was sanctioned by his municipal councillor, by his municipal council for simply expressing his himself on his private property. It had nothing to do with the the town and they went after him using the code of conduct, claiming that he'd breached provisions against unethical behavior, against inspiring public trust and confidence and against discrimination, intimidation and harassment, none of which he did. Um, and also the, the code of conduct doesn't really apply to this situation because he wasn't working on, you know, village business at the time. So anyway, just a little bit more news in that we are uh, assisting John Robertson and the judicial review application has been filed in Prince Edward Island. And if you go to our website, you will find a petition where you can uh, sign up to support John Robertson and I encourage you to do so. So with that, um, I think it's probably time for a break. And after that, Joanna, you will update us on the latest news in the online harms, online harms legislation proposals. Hi, I'm Russell from the CCF. 
In case you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, The Freedom Update, to get updates from me every week about our ongoing work and the legal stories in Canada that keep us interested. It's one of the best ways to stay up to date. Subscribe at the ccf.ca slash freedom update. Okay, so it looks like, uh, at least prospectively, we have some good news about the federal government and their posture vis-a-vis uh, -vis regulating online speech and their seeming antipathy to freedom of expression. Um, this is just Blacklocks is reporting this, um, but Josh, who is an ex-journalist, tells me that it's almost certainly true um, the liberals, it looks like, are dropping their proposed regulation of misinformation or fake news. Uh, Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc wrote a letter to the Commons Ethics Committee where he concluded that the government heard from Canadians and other stakeholders that while false and misleading information online can carry significant consequences, creating legislation and policies that restrict or otherwise limit speech based on the veracity of information would undermine freedom of expression to an unacceptable de degree. Yes, correct. That sounds insane. Yay. Uh, he also wrote that legislation is not the only tool in the government's toolbox to combat false or misleading information. Um, internet literacy programs appear sufficient. I don't know exactly what internet literacy programs they're referring to. I know there's different sort of public initiatives to promote good citizenship and good online literacy. I don't know that I'm just getting paranoid, but let's just hope that doesn't mean any type of like deal with YouTube where your feed is all of a sudden uh, saturated with these government of Canada sponsored lessons on identifying fake news. Um, but let's talk a bit about the background of this. So committee, this ethics committee had recommended that cabinet seek to hold online platforms accountable for publishing false or misleading information. Uh, cabinet then tabled a technical paper in 2021, which proposed it appoint a chief internet censor uh, called the Digital Safety Commissioner, who would oversee content moderation on the internet and would have um, in their arsenal threats of up to $25 million in fines. Uh, and the former heritage minister, now environment minister, God, this guy just always seems to survive politically. Stephen Gilbo in 2021 gave testimony at the Commons Heritage Committee uh, where he said illegal content should also include posts disparaging uh, government institutions because we wouldn't want anyone critiquing government institutions. Um, then at the Liberal party convention in 2023, um, the party approved two policy resolutions with regards to fake news, misinformation. First, a resolution seeking to hold uh, online information services accountable for the veracity of material published on their platforms and to limit publication only to materials whose sources can be traced, um, as well as a, re a resolution to develop truth in political advertising legislation uh, which would be administered by an oversight body. Um, this digital safety bill was not introduced. Um, there were over 9,000 petitioners to the Heritage Department that opposed the misinformation, the digital safety commissioner as being unconstitutional, um, many addressing categories of harmful content um, to speech that might be harmful or might be questionable in its origins, but would nevertheless um, be lawful. So that's the good news, um, that as far as we can tell, this liberal proposal to regulate uh, fake news 
is out. And why is that a good thing? Because we like fake news? No. Um, the question is if the if the treatment is worse than the illness. And here it almost certainly is. So targeting misinformation on a government level puts the state in a position to be our arbiter of truth. Um, it assumes that there's a, a, a single truth, especially in contentious areas or controversial debates. It effectively promotes widespread censorship on social media platforms, which are like our online town halls. So, for example, before this news broke this morning, I was actually planning on speaking to you guys about a McMaster University study that came out last week, which concluded that for the most part, school lockdowns did not meaningfully reduce community spread um, and that almost certainly had very deleterious outcomes that maybe we'll never catch up to for for children um, who are, you know, one day going to be citizens. There's significant learning loss. But there was a time when bringing up these concerns about school lockdowns certainly obviously ran counter to official narratives. Um, so the idea that the truth is some, you know, objective thing that the state always knows and that things are not more dynamic, especially about the debates that most divide society, um, suggests that this would have a massive chilling effect and would be massively censoring. OK, so just very briefly, I'll mention uh, what looks like possibly the bad news, although I really want to emphasize that this is a developing story and hopefully we'll have more clarity about this. Um, next week, and we'll talk about it to you again next week. Um, we are starting to hear some reports, some rumors, um, some reports out of CTV News um, that the Liberals are moving forward with a revamped online harms bill soon. Um, some suggest that it could even be introduced as early as next week. So what we're hearing, CTV is reporting that this could include a new quote-unquote ombudsperson who would field public concerns about online speech or online harmful content, presumably, and a regulator that would oversee the contact, conduct of internet platforms. And this is, of course, the next iteration of the formerly proposed online harms bill, uh, which died on the order paper in 2021, um, which we had a lot of commentary about at the time. Uh, not flattering. It included 24-hour takedown requirements for platforms that could be hosting content flagged as harmful. So obviously, and, and it had pretty uh, severe fines. So clearly platforms would have every incentive to just take down any type of content, which could be uh, on the line. Uh, and then my last comment is we don't know almost anything about what this so-called ombudsman, um, how it will operate, um, what its its mandate will be, may just be a nicer way of being of referring to the former quote unquote digital safety commissioner. So presumably this ombudsman will be a government appointee. Uh, we don't know what carrots or what sticks they will have to address complaints for the public. Uh, and we also have heard some rumors, and this is not reported, this is just uh, from, from the grapevines, that there will be new freestanding criminal offenses of online hate speech that will be added and introduced. Um, so Josh, Christine, we were kind of feverishly talking about this last night and into this morning. Uh, I'll start with you, Christine. What do you what do you think and what are you bracing yourself for? Or are you just super happy that misinformation is out? So we think misinformation is out, right? Is it it's not 100 percent confirmed. And I'm I'm as as always, the story with us is I'm not the optimist. <laughs> so I think we're going to have to wait and see. I have concerns with the things that have been reported. 
Now, one of the things that's being reported is that there will be a statutory definition of hate speech. Right now, that definition is provided for in the case law. And one of the things I'm concerned about is that the, a statutory definition could expand what is covered by hate speech uh, and that it could expand beyond what is established in the case law, like uh, cases like Keegstra. So I get the sense that the federal government wants more prosecutions for hate speech. And one of the ways to achieve that would be making the definition broader. The If you look to Europe, which has very restrictive hate speech laws, that's how they are increasing their levels of prosecution by capturing more speech as hate speech. Uh, another way that prosecutions are more restricted is because the auditor or the attorney general needs to consent to a prosecution. Um, I want to make sure that that requirement remains. There's no indication that that would change, but that's something that we need to watch for as well. I, I think it's, it's sort of missing the point that there are not a lot of prosecutions for hate speech because the whole concept needs to be restrictive. It needs to only apply in really exceptional cases or it you will have a culture that has more censorship in it. And that's a really, really bad thing. Like obviously hate is terrible and we're seeing a lot of it right now, but there's a lot of subjectivity in the definition of what constitutes hate speech. Even even the case law definition has some subjectivity in it. And I just have concerns that it will be expanded. Now, another thing that frustrates me about this whole piece of legislation um, is when it was, I think it was Bill C-36 is what it was called when it was introduced last time. It included a number of, of things, including uh, terrorism, uh, restrictions on terrorist, uh, you know, speech uh, or for organizing terrorist attacks. And it included restrictions on uh, how child sexual abuse images are reported. And these things are obviously terrible and require criminal law responses. The concept of lumping them in together with hate speech, which has a lot more ambiguity and subjectivity, is designed strategically so that the government can say, if you oppose the you know parts of this legislation that deal with hate speech, you are you're uh, soft on child sexual abuse. So it's a it's a it's a cynical strategic move. These these things do not naturally fit together. Hate speech is very different from child sexual abuse. They should not be in the same legislation. They should be legislated separately. Uh, Josh, anything to say on that? Constitutionally, I think that they the government just cannot regulate misinformation, which is you know um, you know just false news. They may be able to regulate disinformation, which is, you know, foreign governments purposefully trying to, you know, manipulate Canadian public opinion, which we see them doing um, in particular, China obviously is doing that in Canada. And I think there's a conversation to be had about disinformation, but misinformation, I'm really glad to hear that they are, um, well, we'll have to see what's actually in the bill, but they're sounding very much like the that is uh, dropped from the bill, or at least mostly dropped from the bill. So I also just wanted to say, Christine, like I agree with you that um, maybe they do want more prosecutions. Certainly the people that are pushing them to pass an online harm bill want to see more prosecutions for hate speech. And 
The funny thing is, uh, you know, a lot of scholars in this area say that the the criminal code we have currently does allow for prosecutions for online comments that meet that extremely high threshold of hate speech, but they don't tend to be charged or prosecuted ever except for in Quebec. And I think you've pointed out there's only a couple prosecutions outside of Quebec, one in Nova Scotia. And so if they clarify that, yes, this applies to online speech, then maybe we will see a lot more prosecutions and that's worrisome, but it'll also depend on whether the AG continues to need to approve these, which is one of the unusual things about criminal hate speech. So long story short, we'll have to uh, take another look at this really closely next week when we see what's actually in the online. Yeah. So I've written about the public and the incitement of hatred in either it was in a previous episode, or I I also wrote an op-ed about it in the McDonald Laurier Institute uh, paper. And those cases dealing with the incitement offense all included like online comments. So, you know, the existing criminal code provisions on incitement and willful, willful, willful promotion certainly are already capturing online spaces. Let's move on to our bad legal takes. So my bad legal take this week goes to National Post, a newspaper that I love, but even they have trouble wrapping their heads around the absurd concept that the charter, which guarantees equal treatment before and under the law in section 50 and one, can also somehow allow you know quite obvious discrimination like the current moratorium on hiring white men to most positions at universities, which is always excused under section 15.2 of the charter, which is the so-called affirmative action clause. And this article is headlined, Can Job Postings in Canada Exclude White People? Short answer, yes. As a former editor, this type of headline is the one that you write when you are not really confident about what the piece has actually concluded, but you're on a deadline (laughs) and you don't want to write a headline that says, you know, we don't actually know the answer to this question. Not a great headline. So anyway, this article was prompted by posting for two Canada research chair jobs at the School of Computer Science and Mathematics at Waterloo. And Canada research chairs are federally funded positions. They're very prestigious. They come with huge amounts of money attached. And these two Waterloo jobs have been limited to, quote, women, transgender, gender fluid, non-binary, and two-spirit people, and racialized minorities, which the article doesn't specify, but I would presume does not include Asian Canadians. And these These job ads have gotten a huge amount of attention, really negative attention, like people are not happy about them um, because they strike Canadians as obviously discriminatory, but they really shouldn't surprise anyone because this federal government has uh, been doing this for years. They have an action plan whereby, you know, by 2029, they want every group of, you know, their four groups that they care about, which is visible minorities, indigenous people, women, and people with disabilities to be basically perfectly represented in every university department by 2029. And as I've mentioned before, this weirdly doesn't include LGBT people because they were not very popular when the Employment Equity Act federally was passed in 1987. Anyway, most of this article is about how employers can discriminate against people where there's a bona fide occupational requirement. So, for example, it's not okay to discriminate against firefighters on the basis of their gender, but if a particular woman can't lift the minimum amount required to be a firefighter, that 
is not going to be discriminatory under a human rights code. It's okay to exclude her from the job because that is a bona fide occupational requirement. But we're not talking about job ads that exclude men or white people on the basis of bona fide occupational requirements. We're talking about job ads that explicitly exclude those groups because the federal government and the university have decided that men can't make up more than 49% of the department, even though these are departments where they historically make up, you know, 80% or more. And the article quotes University of Alberta law professor Eric Adams, who says discrimination is allowed because of the quote, basic acceptance for affirmative action. And Adams says section 15.2 of the charter exempts affirmative action programs from a claim for discrimination, which means that, you know, you can't write no blacks, no women need apply, that would be discriminatory, but exempting, but an exemption for taking active steps to combat discrimination through targeted hires, in his view, is fine. But I think people have kind of lost the plot here because Section 15.2 does say that the equality guarantee, quote, does not preclude any law, program, or activity that has as its object the amelioration of conditions of disadvantaged individuals or groups. But that doesn't mean you can just exclude willy-nilly entire groups of people from job postings. You know, first of all, this exception under 15.2 requires that the program in question, so the Canada Research Chair Equity Program, must have as its object the amelioration of conditions of disadvantaged individuals and groups. But if it's only available to women or transgender people with PhDs in computer science, I don't know that that would qualify because they are not, in, in actual fact, disadvantaged. You know, there's research that shows that women with PhDs in the sciences are far more likely to be hired uh, to university jobs. So how can you argue that these individuals are discriminated against? And the courts increasingly recognize that discrimination requires some level of arbitrary treatment, and that's just not happening here on the facts. And, you know, similarly with the posting that's limited to racialized people, well, you know, Many racialized groups in Canada have far higher incomes than non-racialized groups. So how can you say, again, that they're disadvantaged? It's kind of absurd to, to lump all of these different people into one group. The short answer may be yes, universities can probably get away with this. But the, the better answer is no. If you read the law correctly, they shouldn't be able to do this. Christine, uh, let's hear your bad legal take. It comes from Professor Emmett McFarland. He is a political science professor at Waterloo, and he has a substack which I subscribe to as soon as I saw this headline. The headline is, yes, the feds can actually override provincial anti-trans school policies. Here's how. And I think the the idea is, you know, how to get around the invocation of Section 33. So I was immediately interested because I thought maybe this is about disallowance, which is a section of the Constitution that hasn't been used federally since 1943 and hasn't been used provincially since 1961. So I thought, oh, you know, this could be interesting. I'll subscribe to the Substack, see what Emmett has to say. And boy, was I wrong. It was not interesting and it was extremely stupid. <laughs> um, it was one of the worst ideas I've seen. So as we know, Saskatchewan, Alberta, New Brunswick had these policies or proposals related to parents being informed if a child changes his or her names or, or pronouns. And this upsets some people because they say it 
quote, outs the child or could out them in a home that is abusive. But it's important to know that the policies don't actually out children. The At least the Saskatchewan and New Brunswick policies say that resource teachers would work with students to develop a plan, not actually go out of their way and like inform uh, the parents. And it's also important to know that all of these policies um, come with pre-existing obligations to report abuse. Uh, so if a child is in an abusive home, there are already obligations on the teachers to deal with this. So these are some of the concerns. That's sort of how the policy works. And this is what Emmett's proposal is. Um, there's, he says, I'm going to read it. There's a potentially to say, you know, that's a, a cue that this might not be a good idea. There's a potentially straightforward solution. The federal parliament could pass a new criminal code provision, making it illegal for anyone to out someone in a context where they have reason to believe that outing them may result in physical, emotional, or psychological harm. This law would, in my opinion, apply to any situation where a child has indicated to a teacher that they are hesitant to inform their parents that they wish to identify by a non-cisgendered pronoun. So, you know, this law, I think there's a high likelihood that this criminal law power, you know, putting teachers in jail, uh, I mean, it's obviously a very, very extreme policy proposal that would have disproportionate uh impacts on teachers. Uh, it's There's also a likelihood that it would be struck down by the charter. It could violate um, freedom of expression, freedom of religion. It could violate the Section 7 liberty guarantee because it's overly broad. Um, it could violate uh, parental ability to know what's going on with their kids. I mean, it puts the state at war with parents. It is arguably a violation of the division of power since it's an attempt to regulate education, which is clearly a provincial power. So it could be struck down as a outside the scope of the authority of the federal government to do it um, is. I mean, it's it's not really a criminal law issue. And if it is if, it, if you want to structure this as a criminal law that puts people in jail for um you know, putting a, a child at risk, which by the way, the, the, the existing law already has provisions for this. I just think that this is, um, extremely over the top repressive, probably unconstitutional. And, uh, you know, a law, prof a, a professor in, um, university of British Columbia tweeted this out and he said, ironically, in order to even pass this proposal Emmett has, they may need sec to invoke section 33 to even get this through. So uh, that's a Jeff Sigalet proposal or uh, response to this. So uh, Emmett, no, I think that you potentially could not use this as a straightforward um, provision. And the existing law already has recourse for teachers who want to, you know, intentionally put a child in harm's way. So maybe let's not come up with proposals that put that, that put teachers in jail. <laughs> it's just like so over the top. I want to like unsubscribe to the subject now. It's like one of the worst ideas I've read. Um, okay, that's it for me, Joanna.
Okay, I've got a quick one, and we're going across the pond to the Assemblée Nationale in France, um, which recently passed a new offense that is called provocation à l'abstention de soins, which means provocation to withholding care, recently voted into law by the National Assembly, um, and this was after a few rounds of being defeated. And this law um, aims at what uh, the law calls charlatans and 2.0 gurus um, who promote miracle solutions um, like fasting, uh, juice, juice care, juice cleanses, uh, raw foodism as treatment to serious medical conditions like cancer. And the text of the law says it will not tolerate any criticism of the therapeutic or medical treatments which are recommended or made obligatory by the state. Any person who dares to openly criticize these therapies will be liable to fines and imprisonment. So I mentioned that this could include things like raw foodism or fasting, um, but also quite obviously people notice that this could also apply to vaccines. France did have some pretty heavy handed vaccine mandates. Um, and for the offense of committing this crime, you can receive up to three years imprisonment or a fine of up to 45,000 euros. Um, and the Conseil d'État, which is the advisor to the government, uh, in its critique noted that this current law was neither necessary nor proportional. There are other laws in France which already make it possible to repress um, some of the most odious of these practices, like condemning the illegal practice of medicine, deceptive commercial practices, or endangering the lives of others. So I, I, I agree with the Conseil d'État, and I wish that the Macron government had taken the, the counsel of his, his counsel. And this has been roundly criticized in France, both from the left and the right. On the left, it's been called out to repress uh, criticism of big pharma. And on the right, I got to watch some really fun uh, impassioned speeches uh, looking into this issue um, from uh, free speech defenders. And it, they taught me a term that I hadn't heard before called liberticide. So like uh, uh, killing freedom. Um, this obviously poses a free expression threat. Um, so France, um, go back to your roots. It's liberté, égalité, fraternité. Liberté comes first. Don't commit liberticide. Uh, Josh, <laughs> why don't you close us out? Yeah, that's a great word. As usual, we hope you'll rate us and review us and subscribe. And I really do mean go rate us and review us now or I'll report you to the online harms ombudsman and just a reminder that you can support our work by subscribing to the CCF's YouTube channel, by following us on Twitter, or by visiting our website, theccf.ca, where you can sign up for our new and improved Freedom Update newsletter. The Canadian Constitution Foundation is a nonpartisan legal charity funded by your donations, so please click that donate button on our website if you can. Thanks for listening.